Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host and we are excited to have back on the pod Luke Boggs, the man who has survived his law school finals. Uh, Luke, welcome back. It's good to be back. I know I've been around in spirit, but not in actuality since we've been posting a lot of the interviews I did before my finals, but it's good to actually be back and not just back in, in spirit. Yeah, he's been in your ears, listeners, but I have missed Luke because he has not been with me in quite some time. Too um, long. So this week, we're going to recap the elections that took place last Tuesday. There were some big surprises, uh, maybe not some surprises in terms of who actually won, but in terms of some of the margins in the big races. Uh, we're going to talk about the Democratic governor primary where Stacey Abrams uh, beat Stacey Evans pretty badly in that primary in the Republicans, Brian Kemp and Casey Cagle are headed to a runoff. And we'll talk about the other statewide races and some of the congressional races and check in on the races that we discussed pretty extensively and some of the interviews you did, Luke, on uh, candidates for the mayor and commission over in Athens. Um, so lots to talk about, lots of races to dive into on today's show. Um, Luke, let's just start with the Democrats and let's just start with kind of the headline number here. Stacey Abrams beat Stacey Evans 76% to 24%. Was that a margin that you expected? <laughs> no, that is not a margin I expected. Uh, that is significantly a, a wider margin than I expected. But uh, the, the top line result of Abrams winning was what I expected, but did not expect that big of a result. So what did you think of this margin and um, and the, the history that Stacey Abrams has the potential to make now as the uh, first African-American woman nominee for governor of a major political party in Georgia? I think what it makes me think is that I didn't go to school for nothing. <laughs> I appreciate that because Abrams ran a campaign. I mean, she did the things that you're supposed to do if you're a candidate running for office, especially statewide or, you know, a congressional race, like a serious race in the sense that she raised money, got herself on TV, you know, the traditional things everyone does, but she did the core of what I think a good campaign is, which is targeting voters and trying to get them to show up to the polls with a very robust field campaign. And she did that very early. And, you know, we talked about it a lot on the show that we were curious of how her strategy would work out of investing all of this money in field very, very early. And I think it is apparent that it had worked out quite well for her in the fact that she got 76% of the vote. And that was way more than I even thought possible in a race that on the ground felt pretty contested among the people that I you know talk to regularly, but uh, from a statewide perspective of you know one campaign against another, it really wasn't. And I, I think, and this is something that we started to talk about. Ag, like your thoughts on too, since you talked to them both a lot more than I did in a kind you know in a interviewer capacity, whereas I talked to them on a personal capacity, but. In the past couple of weeks, we really just started reevaluating how well we thought Evans would do and, you know, frankly, diminishing how well we thought she would do because of the fact that she had not really run a campaign in any sense and that there weren't the kind of policy proposals that Abrams were putting out from the Evans camp. There weren't really 
clear, consistent messaging on a variety of topics like we saw from Abrams. And there was real no sense of her having a campaign beyond Stacey Evans, whereas Abrams was quite clearly having a a full-fledged operation of field operatives and you know uh, media contacts and stuff like that. And so I, I'd like your thoughts on that if you think because i i think there's two debates that i'm hearing and this is this is at the heart of what i'm trying to get you to talk about is there's the historical moment that you mentioned and the fact that stacy abrams is the first major african-american woman candidate of either party in the whole country uh for governor and there's the historic moment of just all the you know, political movements and upheavals that we've seen lately. And then there's just what I was talking about, which is just like raw campaigning of having a field operation that targets voters, talks to them and gets them to show up. And which one of those do you think was the determining factor? Obviously it's a little bit of both, but which do you think mattered more? So I definitely think that it was the the field work and the campaign work that seemed to matter more. The thing that I noticed, and, and we had talked about this off air, was I, I felt sort of earlier on in the race that Stacey Evans was just kind of absent. If you didn't see her in a Rotary Club meeting or, you know, at some of these smaller gatherings that she was doing across the state, you really couldn't get much of a sense of what her campaign was about until the last few weeks when she ramped up her TV advertising and when they were having debates. And and so some of these debates were televised. And for Abrams, that was never the case. She uh, really leveraged a lot of her just the day-to-day thing she was doing in the campaign to get media coverage from us and from the AJC and from a lot of other people. Um, You know, I don't know that any of the individual policies that she released or any of the individual events that she had were all that groundbreaking. But, but the takeaway that I had was that every time she would put out a proposal, every time she would have a big event, there would be press coverage generated from that. And so even if you weren't in the room with her at an event that she was at, you could pick up the paper and read about her. You could hear about her on our podcast um, or other outlets across the state. And Evans just never was able to gain that kind of traction for her campaign. And so it it got close to the end. And, and my impression based on the result was that a lot of people um, or was that the baseline was that not a lot of people were paying to this attention to this race in general. Um, I, my theory has been that people are kind of overwhelmed about news about Trump. So they're very engaged in politics, but it's all, you know, all of the oxygen in the, in the room is being sucked up by Trump. Um, so there wasn't a lot of eyes on this race. And so just the literal sort of blocking and tackling that Abrams did to sort of muscle her way into people's attention spans, I think it has a lot to do with this margin of victory. And Evan's message of, you know, sticking to the Hope Scholarship and uh, criticizing Abrams over those cuts in that deal that was made in 2011 with the Republicans and trying to transition that theme of hope from just the discussion of the scholarship to the broader message of her campaign, that never really broke through. And because she didn't have those sort of day-to-day, you know, in in the paper because she put out a policy proposal, getting press coverage because she had big events, having celebrities come in or whatever, I just think it was harder for people to really be aware of her campaign Um, And I think that that is sort of the nuts and bolts of why this grassroots strategy, the early burn 
spending strategy that Abrams had was a lot more successful than the the raise and hold strategy of uh, Evans to spend on TV ads at the end. Yeah, I, I think I agree with that uh, to a great degree because one one of the things that I found myself really having trouble being able to articulate clearly was a robust narrative of why Evans was even running against Abrams from working at the cat that, that the campaign presented because like working at the Capitol, seeing their working, you know, their, their styles of leadership and their working relationship, it makes a lot of sense to me, but for your average voter, your average person who is paying attention to this, you know, race at a much lower level, I don't think there was an argument presented that was viable by any means uh, from from the campaign. I think that probably is part of the, the biggest problem that she faced. So one of the lines that really divided this race was the issue of race. Obviously, we know by now Abrams is African-American and Evans is white. Um, what did you think about, because we had talked about this before this race really heated up and, and sort of the potential for the issue of race to be something that was really combustible in this campaign um, now that it's kind of come to a close, what did you think about the issue of race um, as it stood between the two Stacys? I think it's something that the two campaigns didn't engage in directly, but it's something that was entirely all-consuming on the periphery. And I think part of that has to do with the fact that of what I was just saying is that Evans didn't produce a viable alternative narrative of why she was in the race. And so it was it was a lot easier, I think, for the critics of uh, Evans and the supporters of Abrams to make that argument because there wasn't a good counter argument being made by the Evans campaign. And I think what's interesting, I, I think I think also there is a lot of blame to uh, give the media on it uh, in, in the sense that I don't think it, if it had been a two white guy, you know, white guy and a black guy named John running that it would have been the two Johns. Like, I don't think that narrative would have built where you had this narrative of the two Stacy's. And when you, when you are almost constantly, you know, framing the race as a race between two Stacy's, it makes it super easy to be, you know, reductionist and be like, well, what is the difference between them? It's like, well, one's white and one's black. And that's really what I think the media fueled that narrative like very early. I don't think that was very helpful because there was several other races. I, I mean, really, I, I'm just thinking off the top of my head, the majority of the other statewide races were, you know, mainly contestants between a white candidate and a black candidate. But none of the other ones really got racialized to the extent that the gubernatorial race did. And I think part of it is just what we have been talking about, which is there's been a whole lack of attention on these races in general. And because the amount of time that the AJC is devoting to specific races, it made it very easy for most of the media coverage to indirectly imply that that was the difference between the two candidates when there's actually a lot more differences. But I, I had a lot of complaints about some of the discussion on the periphery about race from the surrogates on, on both sides of these campaigns. So the democratic primary electorate, 
I think is majority African American, right? And like significantly yes. majority African American. So, you know, let's accept for a moment that Evans had a right to be in this race, which I know some people involved as surrogates didn't think so but you know well, evans would have I, I had to there. appeal e- everyone has a right to be electing every race like there you know, yeah like unless you have like some major disqualifier like you've you've been in you know federal prison for killing a bunch of coal miners or you know me too problem like pretty much everybody has a right to be in a race if they are a candidate especially other electeds i mean there's I, yeah, there, there are campaigns that frustrated me and there's campaigns that I didn't think should be going on, but everyone, just about everyone does have a right to, to be in race. Yeah. And so, so let's, you know, agree on that for a second, uh, which I, we're in agreement on, but a, a lot of the surrogates were not. Um, Evans would have had to appeal to African-American voters to come up with some sort of winning coalition. There was just no way around it. And so she got a lot of heavy criticism when she put out a mailer that had, I think, probably a dozen or so African-Americans on it that were supporters of the Evans campaign. And people were, you know, alleging that she was trying to hide that she was white or that she was, you know, sort of unfairly trying to reach out to black voters when Abrams did the same thing to white voters. She uh, made that ad, the guys like me ad, where um, she had this kind of big old white guy come in and and he was face to the camera and he said, you know, Stacey Abrams is going to stick up for guys like me. And Abrams was very clearly trying to appeal in that moment to white male voters. And I thought it was a pretty good ad, but the discussion around Evans mailers that were trying to attract African-American support and Abrams commercial that was trying to attract white men supporters was completely different. That was something that that bothered me as it came to a close. And another thing that bothered me was that, you know, yes, Evans screwed up on the Ebenezer Baptist Church thing. We talked about the video that she made during the campaign um, that she did not get permission for. Uh, from Ebenezer to film in the church. Uh, But towards the end, I saw memes on Twitter where she was tagged as uh, the, the white woman who calls the cops on African Americans. This is something that's kind of become a discussion point in the last few weeks of people unnecessarily calling the cops on people of color. And the thing that we know about that is that when people of color get involved with the police, oftentimes they do not leave those interactions safe. And so that, stereotype was thrown at Evans at the end in a a very unfair way because of, you know, the the implications of what that allegation means, that she was in some way putting African-American lives in danger, when the root of this criticism I saw on Twitter was just that Stacey Evans was raising concerns that have been reported in other places about the uh, registration efforts that Abrams had through the New Georgia Project. So I don't, I, I, I came to the end of this and I was thinking that, you know, both candidates kind of played this fine and and the the worries that we had early in this race about whether or not this issue could be combustible, you know, didn't really come to fruition from the candidates. But I, I saw a lot of uh, misbehavior from surrogates and commentators and pundits that I think deserves to be called out as we wrap this up, because there are going to be competitions in the Democratic Party between black candidates and white candidates going forward. Um, and there's no reason to throw away throw around the racial allegations that we saw from surrogates towards the end of this race i think that's true but i mean i also i i think i think we should hold everybody that you listed accountable but i also think we should hold both of the candidates accountable as well because 
there was not as much of a solid narrative that your average voter could understand from the Evans campaign of why she was in the race. And there is not an effort to communicate that. And it's just a failure of the basic blocking and tackling of campaigns. And I think that's a responsibility that candidates have to have to avoid letting their supporters or their opponent supporters gain hold of, you know, gain enough traction. Because, again, there are so many other races that got a decent amount of attention, enough for a narrative to be formed where, like, that just did not happen. Because, you know, for example, I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit more, but it's just like John Barrow was running against two African-American candidates, and I never heard race come up one time in that race. Now, there's a lot of harsh criticism against John Barrow for his voting record as a congressman. There was a lot of other, you know, concerns, but there was also a positive narrative around him where even some people who, including myself, who are deeply concerned about some elements of his voting record also know he is a incredible advocate for voting issues and that he would never, under any circumstances, no matter how conservative his voting record could be, he would never be in support of voter ID or in support of... uh, gerrymandering or anything that would lower the access to the voting booth and on that front he i think avoided some of those narratives because of the fact that he ran a campaign that had a very clear message and a very clear goal and so on that front you know there's some responsibility held for white candidates to to prove that that's not the reason they're in the race and then on the other side of it too is you know, there's a lot of praise always given to John McCain for when he faced a voter who, you know, criticized Obama of not being a citizen and being a Muslim, I think. And he just like, you know, shut that person down. And I think there is some responsibility on candidates to encourage their supporters to go down a more civil route of discourse. And I don't, you know, I don't, Abrams definitely did not, nothing to encourage that line of discourse. And I don't think I ever saw an instance where someone in that same John McCain-esque scenario where someone asked her if Evans was only running against her because she was black. But, you know, there, there's there's things that could be done. Let's look forward um, to the general from the Democrat side. So, you know, part of what made Abrams' strategy so successful is she she is making the argument that the way to win for Democrats is to energize progressive voters, particularly voters of color, to try to make up what has been a persistent, I think, about 200,000 vote gap in the last few elections between statewide Democratic nominees and statewide Republican nominees. She appears to have done that very successfully in a way that I think is also responsible for some surprising victories from some other African-American candidates. Do you see anything out of this result, Luke, that suggests that she can replicate this strategy in the general election in a way that could put her over the top if this uh, strategy of pursuing progressive voters makes her less appealing to potential uh, crossover moderate Republicans? I think it's difficult to answer that question because what we've seen all around the country is that Democratic turnout has been up in a very spectacular way. And it's difficult to know if we saw Abrams win the way that she did because of Democratic turnout being higher organically because people are pissed off about Trump and so Democrats are just energized. Or is it that her... 
aggressive early field campaign really paid dividends for her. Um, based off of her margin being significantly higher than any other contested Democratic race that I saw, I think it probably does involve her campaign to some extent. And so the the 200,000 voter gap is, is correct. That is about how many more voters that you have to turn out. It's possible. In, in, in the sense of raw numbers, um, if she could just get all of the people that vote in presidential elections very you know, standardly and pretty much show up every four years instead of showing up every two years, I mean, that would, that would be enough for her to, to win just by doing that alone. That's a very difficult thing to do. I don't want to make it seem like it's not, but it is possible. Um, so, I mean, on that, on that front, it would be possible to just talk to Democrats and just get Democrats to show up. But I think if she's going to win, it will involve getting some of the Romney Clinton voters as well. Yeah, so I, I don't I don't know how many Trump Abrams voters there will be. I'm sure there will be. <laughs> and I, I hope the AJC writes an article about it because I'd be fascinated to know why they're going that route. But I mean, for the most part, is she she there's a lot of work that could be done in the suburbs and in, you know, minority communities. I mean that's that's the the real thing she needs to do. So I, and I actually saw a uh, article from Jason Carter in the bigger Southerner today, where he was talking about this in the sense that if Democrats, not just Stacey Abrams, but she needs to, and any other Democrat running in Georgia needs to do both. Like you, you gotta be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. And I don't think that means that she needs to compromise any of her progressive values I just think she needs to actually communicate those progressive values to those communities. And I think that's going to be the most important thing. And I will, you know, suggest that if we sit here in November, uh, you know, with Governor Abrams elect, I think it will be because of the fact that she was successful in doing both. And I would be very surprised if she was not winning a lot of those Romney Clinton voters and also boosting minority turnout if she wins. Yeah, I think now is probably the right time to try her strategy. Um, the strategy of trying to primarily appeal to crossover voters to me seems like something that's that's just going to fall short. And you know, I think there's a lot of room on the left to run and be progressive and and capture that energy because a lot of that energy is derivative of Trump being in the White House. And so a lot of people on the left are mad as hell. And they want a candidate who I think is going to, you know, also be mad as hell with them and really stand up for some progressive ideas to do something about it. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't think that this would be a winnable race if Hillary Clinton was sitting in the White House right now. I think it would be a very tough environment for Democrats this time around. So I think, you know, in a way, Stacey Abrams owes a lot to Donald Trump to to making this a winnable race for her. Um, but I do think that, you know, capturing this party in the direction that it's going um, is, you know, worth taking a shot at this time because, you know, it's a good test of whether or not Democrats are going to show up enough to put candidates over the top in statewide races. And if, if the Democratic base cannot show up for a candidate who speaks to them directly, speaks to their values, is not afraid to offer really aggressive solutions to problems, then Democrats are never going to 
win a statewide race. They're they're never going to be able to do it without the base because these Republicans are not going to come over and, and make up that 200,000 vote gap. So as for sort of, you know, the, the result seems to settle for Democrats, whether or not this decision or strategic decision by Stacey Abrams is the one that the party is going to go with. Uh, but as for whether or not it's the right one, I think at this point it's uh, the right time to take a shot uh, because in a sense you uh, really almost have nothing to lose. Yeah, my, and my last point on that would be, I think Democrats statewide have fallen into the same trap that Evans fell into in this campaign, which was they were not willing to make arguments of why someone should take the risk and and vote for someone who they naturally wouldn't think about voting for. Because if you're going to run against a Republican in Georgia, you have to convince people that you would be better than that person and that, you know, based off raw numbers, most people in Georgia usually vote for Republicans. And so it would be a change if they voted for a Democrat. And so as Democrats, you have to go out there and make a very fierce and passionate argument for why someone should stop doing what they've been doing and start supporting you or, you know, someone who doesn't vote, why should they show up for you? And I think a lot of Democrats had haven't been willing to make the strong argument necessary to pull both of those things off. And as you said, Abrams is is doing both. And this is probably the time in which that might work. So uh, I'm, I'm very excited to, to see what will happen, will happen. And I, I you know, I, I definitely, there's a lot, and one other thing about this campaign that's annoyed me is that a lot of Democrats have acted like that, Stacey Abrams is now the governor of Georgia that we've already won and that we can all, you know, go home and be happy. And that's definitely not true um, because she's still an underdog in this race, despite the national attention that she's getting and will get because of her win and how amazing it was. So we have to actually put in the work if we want her to get elected. And I'm hoping that uh, most people will realize that. So let's move on to the Republicans. Uh, so this was a five-way race between Casey Cagle, Brian Kemp, Hunter Hill, Clay Tippins, and Michael Williams. And that was the uh, order of the results. Casey Cagle and Brian Kemp move on to a runoff. Casey Cagle earned 39% of the vote. Brian Kemp earned 26% of the vote. Hunter Hill trailed in third and earned 18% of the vote. What is your thought about Casey Cagle's margin in this race, because there was discussion early, earlier in this race that there was a possibility Casey Cagle could win this race outright without a runoff. And his uh, supporters and surrogates kind of tamped that down pretty quickly. But, you know, the fact that that point was raised sort of made me think that Casey Cagle thought he could finish plus 45% of this vote. And he only ended up at 39. And he was only 13 points ahead of Brian Kemp, who he's now going to be in the runoff with. What do you think about uh, what that margin tells us about who might come out of this runoff between Cagle and Kemp? I mean, I, I, I would be very worried if I was on the Cagle campaign based off that result, because that's, it's not a very strong showing for someone who going into this race was very clearly the front runner and very clearly the person that everyone thought would run away with it. And the fact that he hasn't, I think is an indication of a couple things, but I mean, I think, I think the biggest thing, this is a very simple way of putting it and, uh, you know, a bit too simple, but it's just like the Trumpification of the Republican party. I mean, if you look even prior to Trump, I mean, back in 2014, 
in 2015, like right after Governor Deal got reelected. I mean, I remember several times in which uh, my friends who were at like Republican county meetings and their conventions and stuff like that. I mean, Deal is not popular among the people in the like hardcore elements of the Republican Party. And by hardcore, I mean just the people who are like the base, the people that show up a lot. It doesn't mean they're actually like radical, but a lot of them are. But I mean, he's just not popular. Like they don't like how moderate Deal has been. And though Cagle has done his darndest to separate himself from Deal a little bit, he is quite obviously among the people running, like he is the most Deal-like. He is the most Deal-esque and that he is the closest thing to a successor to deal that was in this race. And so I think in a lot of ways, remove Trump from the equation. It's just like, this is a lot of people who are fed up with not having a pure conservative candidate and fed up with how moderate deals been. And they're taking it out on Casey Cagle. I don't see that element dying down. And I mean, Brian Kemp has a real chance of winning this thing. And a lot of my Republican friends, who are pretty moderate or are deeply concerned <laughs> that Brian Kemp will win because of just the the unimpressive number that Cagle put up and how close Kemp was to him. The interesting thing about that is the frame that I had kind of adopted as we as we went into the election was that Brian Kemp and Hunter Hill were kind of fighting over the definition of what the conservative alternative was going to mean. Um, there was a lot of frustration from conservatives a few years back over the state not doing more to lower taxes and how this conservative government that had supposedly been brought in by Republicans in the early 2000s had really not done much to lower people's taxes. And so, you know, the the issue of the fair tax and trying to lower people's tax burdens was something that animated the conservative alternative to Nathan Deal and in the sort of the Chamber of Commerce establishment Republicans, and then enter Donald Trump and enter the issue of immigration in a really big way. And Kemp really leaned into trying to attract the anti-immigrant voters um, that were, you know, really brought about by, you know, Trump's ascension in the Democratic, in the Republican Party, excuse me. Um, and so, you know, I kind of thought this would be an interesting test of what is the issue that is really pulling Republican voters right now? Is it immigration or is it taxes? And is there any backlash among Republicans to Trump being derided and unpopular? Or do they feel a lot of reason to rally around him? And in the end, it really didn't end up being that close. Brian Kemp leaned into that immigration messaging in the end, leaned into um being the most pro second amendment candidate of anybody on the ballot, or maybe of anybody to ever run for office every anywhere in the history of the world. <laughs> those two issues seem to put him over the top over Hunter Hill and put him in this runoff. Uh, he got the endorsement of Georgia Kerry, who also gave an anti endorsement to Hunter Hill and um, Hunter Hill really never was able to make the tax cut messaging dominate this race in a way that he would have liked, I think. Uh, and I think that that is the reason that he is not in the runoff. Luke, do you think that this movement in the Republican Party towards being really incensed about the issue of immigration and maybe even the issue of guns, is this something that, uh, you know, it's it's gobbled up Hunter Hill? Is there a chance it also gobbles up Casey Cagle in the runoff? Yeah, I mean, that that's exactly what I was talking about before. It's, it's that exact 
impulse that has a lot of the Republican base upset with Deal and now upset with Cagle. And I, I don't know how far Cagle is going to be willing to go to appease those folks um, because it always comes off kind of hokey when Cagle tries to, I mean, like the NRA tweet while it was super stupid and it, it felt out of character uh, for Cagle and it just, see, it just seemed like he's trying to appease them. And I think on that front, you know, his attempts to do that, because I think that's what we're going to see in the next two months for their runoff is Cagle's going to try to run as far to the left as he can and appease those folks and be as radical as he can. Um, as far to the right. Right. Oh, I say left. <laughs> um, yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't think we'll find him in the room with Stacey Abrams. Anytime, yeah. I'm so. in far, as um, far to yeah. the right. No, I, I think Cagle's already doing this. Um, the NFL announced today that they were basically encouraging players in the NFL to stay in the locker room so that they would not uh, continue their kneeling uh, demonstrations about uh, police violence and other issues important to African Americans. They made the decision today to allow the players to stay in the locker room. And uh, Casey Cagle, either on Twitter or Facebook, uh, touted the NFL's decision and echoed what Trump and Mike Pence were both saying that this was a big sort of victory in the culture war. And I don't think four years ago, I don't think Casey Cagle would have been weighing in on the issue of NFL players kneeling during the national anthem. So I I do think he is chasing this Trump base in a way, but it also seems very transparent that that's not who he is. You know, even if you look back to the 2016 Republican presidential primary, it it did seem like some candidates were trying to be sort of in that place with Donald Trump. Ted Cruz comes to mind. And I think voters on the Republican side kind of saw through that and went for the authentically Trumpian candidate and not, not Trump light or fake Trump. And so I think that's what gives Brian Kemp an upper hand in this race. The other thing that's kind of been raised though, is whether or not Nathan Deal will play a role in trying to sway this primary one way or the other. If he does weigh in, and presumably he would weigh in in favor of Casey Cagle, could that actually hurt Cagle, do you think? I mean, yeah, obviously. Based off of everything uh, I've been saying, I mean, honestly, I think Deal is a, a non-factor in a lot of ways, and that if he gets involved, it'll only hurt whoever he gets involved for. I mean, really, who I'm watching the most are the defeated Republican candidates because I mean it seems pretty apparent that Michael Williams will will go for Kemp I imagine I mean they basically ran the same same campaigns uh, I mean Michael Williams was kind of like a parody version of Brian Kemp's campaign it's just like if you know Brian Kemp was being uh, you know ridiculous he would find a way to be even more ridiculous with his very stupid and insensitive deportation bus which i actually saw and i was terrified when i saw it because like oh this is a real thing i'm i'm seeing it driving <laughs> in the middle of nowhere georgia so uh it was <sighs> deeply concerning but the other two candidates i mean it, the real thing that's going to be interesting is if the voters and those candidates end up supporting kegel or kemp if they're you know if, if that matters because Hunter Hill, in a lot of ways, was running a campaign that was a in-between of where Kemp and Cagle were and was a sane, stable alternative to Cagle. And Clay Tippins was just like running a very bad version of the David Perdue 
senatorial campaign. And so on, on that front, I don't know where those folks go, because I feel like they don't have a natural home in any of the two runoff campaigns. Yeah, I agree. I, th- I think that's going to kind of be an important factor. Um, and then the other thing that's important is that this is a runoff in late July. A lot of people are going to be on vacation. Even fewer people are going to be paying attention. And so, you know, does the fact that Casey Cagle's you know, probably liked but not beloved by the moderate Republicans who may or may not be paying attention or may or may not be able to make the vote because they may be at their beach house uh, during that week in July. Um, that has a chance to hurt him. But it, it, Luke, if you're Stacey Abrams, do you have a rooting interest in this primary? Is there, uh, would you rather see Casey Cagle or Brian Kemp at the other end of this runoff? Man, this is, this is sort of a, it's a, it's a, it's a nightmare question for me, really. I have a strong take. Okay, on this, well, I look so forward to it because uh, you know I, and I mentioned this before. I think one of the like the smartest political moves that anyone has ever made was when Claire McCaskill in Missouri uh, ran ads against one of her potential opponents during the Republican primary uh, to help him win, basically. And that was Todd Aiken, who ended up just being a, a gold buying of of a opponent in the sense that he said and did things in that just tanked his campaign and was also just a weak candidate to begin with, even before he did those things. So if I was the Abrams camp, I bring up the Todd Aiken thing because I don't feel like Kemp or Cagle are neither one of them are running a bad campaign in the sense of like doing blocking and tackling in the way that I've criticized some other campaigns. Like they're both doing the same thing. Now I think they're both, running way far to the right in the right direction this time they're, they're moving way too far to the right <laughs> and they're running ads that i think will hurt them and become attack ads against them uh during a general election uh but i, I you know the instinct and in what i hear most people say is kemp and the reason that i want to play devil's advocate against her winning kemp is the fact that kemp might energize all the trump voters in a way that they're feeling pretty down right now and they're not very enthused about what's going on in Washington for most polls and just like for most other elections. But like Kemp is someone that could actually energize these voters again and get them fired up. And then additionally, there's a lot of bad blood between Abrams and Kemp and like that race will become super nasty and super personal almost immediately because they've literally sued each other. (laughs) Like they've literally been in court against each other for the other organizations that they have run with Abrams and the new voter project and uh, Brian Kemp and his capacity as secretary of state. And like, that's not gonna, that's not gonna create civility in any way, shape or form. Whereas if it's cable, it, it might be better for Abrams because he's boring and people won't be excited about it. And Republicans are already kind of depressed about everything. And so you have a candidate on, on the Democrat side that's very exciting, a great speaker, very charismatic, and um, has some very exciting policy ideas. And I feel like Democrats are going to be pretty enthusiastic and where Republicans just might not be. But there's also the other side where Cagle is moderate enough and boring enough that he might get those those Romney Clinton voters might be Romney Clinton Cagle voters instead of Romney Clinton Abrams voters like we want them to be. 
Yeah, I feel pretty strongly that Stacey Abrams should want to face Brian Kemp. And it, you're right, it will become a really ugly slugfest between the Sherman two Sherman will people. rise from the dead and burn Georgia back down. But I don't think that, I don't think Stacey Abrams is worried about that. And she may even revel a little bit in getting to just like, you know, duke it out with Brian Kemp. Um, but I, I think the reason is, you know, part of, I think, what motivates progressives right now is a fear about the Trump administration and a fear about what Trump's policies and ideas mean. And I think it's pretty easy for Stacey Abrams to tag Brian Kemp with a lot of these same ideals because of the messages that Brian Kemp has been putting out on immigration. And, and, you know, it's, it's easy for her, I think, to take what he said about immigration and turn that into what he's saying about people of color and then give them a real reason to be really afraid of a Brian Kemp. Uh, governorship in a way that I think would be really difficult against Casey Cagle. I think we would hear Casey Cagle utter the words career academies like 300,000 times between, you know, over the election season. And he would talk about career academies and jobs, and he probably would never say the name Donald Trump at all once he has won the primary. And that sort of pushes Abrams, I think, into trying to also be a little more moderate or or be the democratic but similar alternative to Casey Cagle in a way that if she still tries to run her sort of purely progressive campaign Casey Cagle might sort of be more effectively be able to tag her as a progressive radical in a way that um could you know energize Trump voters and maybe it's people like Hunter Hill's voters to come out for Cagle, even though they don't love him because they, um, you know, Stacey Abrams could have this sort of Hillary Clinton problem against Casey Cagle in a way that I don't think she'll have against Brian Kemp because she can just sort of, you know, take the reins off and, and them have a pure left versus pure right uh, battle. And, you know, that fits right into Abrams strategy of, you know, she has to have a reason to get these voters back out in the general in her chance to make history and her turning Brian Kemp into a truly reviled figure. I think that that is a, a good recipe for her in November. Yeah, I actually think I have to agree with that now. I think I think you convinced me um, because I think I think on the messaging side, the things that Abrams wants to talk about, it's easier to do it if it's Kemp because I uh, because I actually. I randomly saw today a Facebook post from uh, Casey Cagle, and it was doing exactly what you were saying, which was just trying to make Abram seem like a really out of touch, uh, you know, radical who wanted to raise everybody's taxes and put everyone on welfare and that kind of thing. Which, like, if if it's Cagle that's doing that messaging, it will be a lot easier to uh, have people buy into it. Where. Kemp, I'm sure, would say those things, but he also will be saying pretty bad stuff about, you know, immigrants and racial minorities. And I, I just don't feel like that will translate as well uh, and as safely for him as it will for for Cagle and his campaign. Well, and the other thing is the the polling earlier in this race uh, showed that Nathan Deal has really high approval ratings um, and that people are generally pretty happy with the direction that the state is going, even if they aren't happy about what's going on in Washington. And so Cagle could lean into him being able to say, we're just going to kind of continue things the way that they were. And Abrams is a radical departure in the wrong direction from where 
things have been going. And so it, it leans into Republican voters' existing feelings about how the state is doing and allows him to allows Cagle to kind of cozy up to a very popular Nathan deal. And even if it doesn't bring out, you know, the hardcore Trump, Brian Kemp and Trump, Michael Williams voters, he's still got that 200,000 vote advantage to play with. And even if Abrams only cuts it in half, he's still winning by 100,000 votes. Let's kind of move on here to some of the other uh, statewide races. So in the lieutenant governor's race, Sarah Riggs Amico beat Triana Arnold James 56 to 44. Um, She is going to wait for a runoff on the Republican side between David Schaefer and Jeff Duncan. Luke, what do you think about this margin for Sarah Riggs Amico? Because I had raised uh, when I was on the podcast with Jessica Salaji, I had raised that Sarah Riggs Amico could potentially be in trouble given that she was losing in polling despite outraising Triana Arnold James by a lot. Um, this margin was closer than I would have expected uh, a few months ago when we talked to Sarah Riggs Amico, but, but what do you think about this margin? Is there any sign of weakness there or, um, or is she uh, set up pretty good headed to the general? I would say based off what we saw statewide, Amico did better than you would expect based off the numbers. Now, based off of thoughts going into the race, she did a lot worse. So on that front, it's it's kind of hard to have a solid narrative on it. The thing that I've just heard and just seen by looking at the numbers is that there was a real dramatic increase in turnout in Democrats all across the state. And, you know, a big part of the Democratic base is African-American women. And I think there was a real solid effort on a lot of Democratic voters to surprise, you know, support viable African-American women candidates where they could. And I think just in talking to people all across the spectrum in Georgia, pretty much everyone thought Triana Arnold James was not viable. Whereas... Janice Laws, who in what I would say was the second biggest surprise of the night for me, you know, beating Cindy Zeldin, she was far more viable and like was very well spoken on the issues and, you know, knew what she was talking about and is an insurance, has background in insurance. And so, you know, there, there, yeah, that was in the insurance commissioner. Yes, the race. insurance commissioner race. You know, and she, she beat Cindy Zeldin, who most, people thought would had it locked up and she'd raised a lot of money and had been, you know, campaigning to some extent. But I just think when it comes to Amico, um, Triana had not proven to be as viable. And I think that is probably the reason that Amico was able to pull it off because throughout the state, and uh, I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about it, uh, but in my, you know, uh, congressional district in the 10th for for folks in Athens the person that won basically was completely unknown in Athens and no one had even heard about the campaign at all uh, but that that's who won so just up and down the ballot and and even like in state house races uh, female candidates in general black or white were doing way better than people thought they would do um, so there just seems to be a lot of a lot, a very strong desire among Democrats on Tuesday to support women candidates where they could, African American candidates especially when they could. On the other side of the lieutenant governor's race, David Schaefer got forty nine percent of the votes. He just barely 
missed winning this race outright. He's going to face Jeff Duncan in a runoff in the summer. Um, And I, I think this result was kind of interesting. Duncan actually barely uh, beat uh, Rick Jafaris to get into the runoff. And Duncan to me was kind of, he was sort of on track with Hunter Hill. Uh, He, in the Lieutenant governor debate, he talked about taking the burden of social services off of the government and putting it on to other entities as a way to reduce government spending and lower the state income tax he really leaned into a lot of similar messaging to Hunter Hill on those issues. And then he ran an almost purely negative campaign at David Schaefer to, I guess, to try to beat him down enough so that he could not win that race outright. But to me, Duncan has a really high hill to climb because Schaefer's you know, result after being beat down by Duncan's negative campaigning, he still got 49% of the vote. Um, but it, it becomes an interesting tie in between the uh, the gubernatorial runoff and the lieutenant governor runoff um you know Schaefer's success really seems like it would benefit Casey Cagle because they're both longtime members of the state senate and this would sort of beat back the anti-career politician uh sentiment among republicans right now but Jeff Duncan and Brian Kempart don't really seem like the same kind of republican but if they can sort of you know, neither of them seem to be running on a ticket together or trying to combine some of this messaging. But if they could bring that anti-career politician sentiment together, um, you know, Kemp's success may also drag Duncan across the finish. No, line. I think that's true. And uh, from talking to my Republican friends with David, Sha- uh, you know, with the David Schaefer race, they pretty much thought he was going to run away with it. And when he actually attracted two viable candidates against him that sort of got a lot of people thinking about well like should should he run away with it or not and i think the fact that he had as much trouble and didn't make it to a runoff indicates that he is in trouble i would say that kegel's in more trouble and kegel has a much bigger threat but since he failed to avoid a runoff he still has uh some risk of losing it and, and I've interacted with Jeff Duncan, not not directly, but just indirectly seeing him at the Capitol and listening to him in committee and stuff. I mean, he's he's a pretty sharp guy, so I, I will not be surprised if he runs a pretty aggressive race against um, Schaefer. It'll, it'll be interesting to see how it shakes out. The other pair of big statewide primaries was for the Secretary of State's position. Um, as we mentioned already, John Barrow won the Democratic primary for Secretary of State former member of Congress, longtime, uh, well-known Georgia politician. Um, he beat D. Dawkins Hagler and R.J. Hadley, um, which, you know, in a sense is probably pretty impressive that he had two opponents and was still able to avoid a runoff. But he only avoided it with 52% of the vote. He didn't really win this thing in a big way. Um, is Does that, though, really matter? Um, because if there is a big Democratic wave, John Barrow has both the ability to appeal to some crossover voters and would probably benefit from the voters of color that Stacey Abrams can turn out just because he has a D by his name. Does does that margin um, in him barely avoiding the runoff, do, do you think that matters at all? I don't think it does. I mean, the fact that he avoided a runoff is pretty spectacular because, I mean, we have to think about the climate we're in. And as we were talking you know, earlier, it's like you look at all these races and there is a, you know, there's two, there's two just undeniable movements going on. 
in Democratic primaries right now, and that is to support the most progressive candidate that most voters think are viable. And in you know, most races around the country, people are asking, like, who's the most progressive candidate? That's their first question. Then, are they viable? And then there's a strong effort to support women candidates and African-American candidates. And, I mean, Barrow beat, you know, both an African-American woman and an African-American man. And he has a voting record that concerned a whole lot of Democrats, including myself, and, you know, supporting, you know, supporting the ERA, having an A rating with them. Uh, having voted against Obamacare at some times and voting for it at other times, you know, on an issue by issue basis, and a couple other uh, votes that were like really deeply concerning and uh, really critical of the Obama administration in this time where everyone is running as hard as they can to look like Bernie Sanders. You have someone whose entire brand is how moderate they are and how reasonable they are making it through a Democratic primary. So it's it's pretty pretty spectacular, I think, uh, that he pulled it off because I was I was getting very skeptical of his ability to do it near the end, and so on that front, I think your second part of that is is correct in the sense that he will have the ability to get some crossover votes. I imagine he's going to do very well in the twelfth congressional district, and I also think it's going to be pretty funny because if John Barrow ends up winning, it will probably be because he got redistricted so many times that he's had to advertise in almost every media market in the state of Georgia and that most voters know who he is. (laughs) And that is just hilarious to me because if you look at the map, uh, he won pretty much every county. I think he might have won every county. Uh, But he also just blew out the old 12th congressional district. Um, so I think, I think we'll see something, you know, similar in that he'll do very, very well in the old, his old district and he very well might win because most of the state knows him because they gerrymandered him a bunch. Um, so he's going to be awaiting a runoff between John Doe number one and John Doe number two on the Republican side. These are two people that I, before they got into this race, I'd never heard of the two Republicans that won. The that made it to the runoff for Secretary of State are Brad Raffensperger, a backbench uh, state legislator, and David Bell Isle, uh, the mayor of Alpharetta. They beat what were at least within Georgia politics two more well known people, uh, Josh McCoon, former state senator who uh, got a lot of notoriety for some of his positions and bills he sponsored, but he also seemed to make amends with Republicans in the legislature to the point that a lot of legislative Republicans were backing him up in this race. And Buzz Brockaway, my favorite conservative, uh, he uh, finished in fourth. That's um, probably why he finished in fourth. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not, he's not my favorite conservative because he's a weak or fake conservative. He is, he is a pure uh, and true conservative. He is just uh, very honest about it and thoughtful about it. Um, and we had a great conversation with him on the show a long time ago now when he first, uh, you know, set up to run for secretary of state. But yeah, we're going to have Brad Raffensperger and David Bell Isle uh, compete to go against John Barrow. Is this sort of the dream matchup for John Barrow, him having a lot of name ID and having had to run in almost every county in the state for his uh, moving congressional districts versus uh, two guys who people have not really heard of 
I mean, I, I think so. Uh, you know, for the record, I heard of Raffensperger. I've not heard of Bill Isles. But among some of my Republican friends, a lot of them had heard of Bill Isles and liked him. He's he's a a mayor. I can't remember where, but um, Alfred, Alfred. Okay, he's out. Yeah. Alfred. So, um, I mean, on that front, I I think it helps him a lot in that if it had been McCoon, because the conventional wisdom is that Barrow wanted to run against McCoon because of the fact that he has such a negative record and John Barrow is like undeniably very moderate and very non and has been running very aggressively on a message of like, I really don't want to do this because I'm a Democrat. I want to do it because I believe in the issue of voting rights and I want to be a kind of nonpartisan person supporting that issue. And obviously he has a very progressive view of that issue um, but that, I mean, that's pretty much why he's running. And so you have a combination of someone who is running for an office that has been politicized aggressively by Brian Kemp running to depoliticize the office. And he has high name recognition and he's running against someone who most of the state has never heard of and will have to address Brian Kemp's very piss poor handling of the secretary of state's office. So I, I you know, a lot of people, including myself, think that there's a, a possibility, a strange one, where like no other statewide Democrat wins except Barrow, and I, th- I think that's possible still. But we'll we'll have to see. I, I mean, I again, he's definitely he definitely is not the favored to win, just because Georgia is a you know a red state and Republicans usually win. But I think he is sort of in a strange place where he could pull it off, and we're really just gonna have to see how that runoff goes and who comes out of it and how strong of a position they are in to, you know, defeat Barrow. And they're going to have a uphill battle on their hands on both sides. And it'll be, I think a really exciting campaign. And I I will be very curious to see what polling says when, when we uh, figure out who the Republicans going to be. So let's wrap up uh, statewide and state legislative and, and get into Congress. Um, so as we mentioned, Janice Laws beat Cindy Zeldin for the no- the Democratic nomination on insurance commissioner, uh, which was kind of surprising. Um, the trend of supporting women continued in the Public Service Commission races. Lindy Miller beat John Knoll, who we talked to, and Don Randolph beat a former state senator, Doug Stoner in two of those Democratic Public Service Commission races. And then in the state school superintendent race on the Democratic side, Otha Thornton and Sid Chapman. Um, Sid Chapman, I think, was the leader of Georgia Association of Educators or, or one of the educator groups. And Otha Thornton, I think, was formerly involved in like the national PTA or, or something like that. Um, they're going to go to a runoff to take on the incumbent state school superintendent, Richard Woods, in the fall um, and then a couple of notes on state legislative races. There there were a bunch of these, um, and we're going to get into state legislative stuff uh, now that we have a lot of Democrat versus Republican races in these contests. Um, but our friend Aisha Yacoub, she won a Democratic primary uh, for a state house seat in Gwinnett County. Um, so I, I mentioned uh, on social media on election day that she was my one totally biased uh, voting recommendation for people. I'm, I'm totally sold on her uh, because I admire her a lot, um, but also excited to see her be successful. So congratulations to her. And the other interesting note 
out of the state legislative races was that state Senate minority leader, Steve Henson, he narrowly held off a primary challenger. Um, This was another African-American woman who had a lot of success. And Steve Henson had his first primary challenge in 16 years. And I think he only won about 100 votes. uh, About 100 votes. Um, So, you know, that would have shook up the state Senate a little bit. Um, and actually when election night closed, when the polls closed, the discussion was that he had lost and in the end he ended up uh, prevailing by just a little bit. All right. So let's wrap this episode up with the congressional races and then our analysis of the local elections in Athens, the mayor and commission races. You're going to find those in a separate bonus episode. This was a mid episode switch by us. You heard, you heard us say we were going to talk about it in the beginning. Then we got we're an hour in right now. So we're going to, yeah, we're going to, we're going to set that aside in a bonus episode because I'm sure we actually probably have a good deal to say about that, but let's wrap up with these congressional races in this episode. The interesting races are in the sixth and the seventh for Democrats in the sixth, Lucy McBath, a uh, pretty well-known uh, gun, gun reform activist uh, due to the very tragic, circumstance of her son being um, murdered in Florida. She won the sixth district primary or she, she came out on top in the sixth district primary, but she's going to go to runoff against Kevin Abel. Uh, He's an immigrant from South Africa who has made a big deal in this race about, you know, not being shy about going after Donald Trump. These two candidates are going to vie in the runoff to take on Karen Handel in the, uh, in another shot to try to knock handle out. Um, there's not going to be $30 million in this race. I don't think, but looking at this runoff, Luke, the issue of gun violence and gun control reforms is something that's very much on the top of the agenda right now. And so for a very tragic and personal reason, do you think that that issue being on top of people's minds is going to give Macbeth the upper hand in this runoff. I mean, I, I think so. And like we were talking about earlier, there's been a strong urge to support women candidates as well. And I think those things combined will be a, a big part of whoever wins. But, you know, also, and this is applies to all the runoffs that we're going to be having in Georgia, they're in July. And so Really, it's going to it's going to go to turnout. I think. Um, whereas you had a lot of people showing up because they were excited about the governor's race and the opportunity to nominate the first African American woman candidate. You know, a lot of voters show up and didn't know who else to vote for. Uh, whereas with these runoffs, I think most people will know who they're coming to vote for and will know what's on their ballot and will have strong feelings about it. So. It's probably who does the blocking and tackling, who gets their message out, who makes sure their supporters show up. I mean, I think that's really what's going to determine who wins in that race because, I mean, their margin was really not that far apart. I mean, it was 36, 31, and it's a difference of about 2,000 votes. So, three, sorry, three, yeah, 2,000. So I, I think it's going to come down to just the basics of, of campaigning. The other uh, interesting note comes from the 7th District Democratic primary. Carolyn Bordeaux, who we talked to, she's going to go on to the runoff to face David Kim. They uh, had really close 
uh, tallies in the final vote, Bordeaux got 27% of the vote. David Kim got 26% of the vote. There was a difference of about 400 votes between the two of them. And then there was a, a pretty significant drop off to Ethan Pham, Melissa Davis, Kathleen Allen, and Steve Riley, the other Democrats in that race. The thing that I saw pointed out about this race, though, is that Rob Woodall, he had a primary challenger on the Republican side. He's the incumbent. He got fewer votes in the primary than did all of the 7th District Democrats combined by about, it was 30,000 votes for Rob Woodall and about 31,000 votes for all the Democrats. Um, The interesting thing I think was lost in that note about that point, though, is that uh, the total on on the Republican side was still 11,000 more votes because Shane Hazel Rob Woodall's challenger got about 11,000 votes. Um, so I don't know. That's the one, Luke, that is looks like the lowest hanging fruit for Democrats in congressional pickups. Do you think, do you have any thoughts about the Democrats, the Democrats' chances as this thing moves to a runoff? The, the most important thing is that this is the seat that the Democrats want to target. I mean, it's the worst kept secret in Georgia that we don't feel great about the six because it's just a tougher district and that we think if we're going to pick up a district, it's going to be the seventh. Um, so it's a primary that everyone's watching really closely. And I, I, you know, I don't think it's going to be hurt um, too much by having a runoff because of the fact that to beat Rob Woodall, it's going to require the Democratic candidate to get their name and message out, of, out there more. And I think having a runoff will be helpful in that because uh, as we've seen, there was a lot of races, a ton of races during this primary. And I think the media got a little bit overwhelmed because there were not a lot, if any, articles about many of the races. And most of the time, it was only about the gubernatorial race. Um, I, I literally cannot recall an article I read about the Secretary of State race or the Lieutenant Governor's race. I only remember seeing stuff about the gubernatorial. So that being said... Having just a few runoffs, and especially it being in the metro area, it will help that race actually get attention and get articles written about it and have people know what's going on. And so on that front, I think it, in general, whichever candidate comes out on top, I think it will, it will help. And that's, you know, it's a district that's very quickly demographically changing to the Democrat side, but the blocking and tackling of campaigns has to to be done for us to actually win that race. And then the final race, I think worth noting is this sort of surprise outcome for the Democrats in the 10th congressional district primary. Tabitha Johnson Green beat Shallis Montgomery and Richard Winfield. And in that three candidate race, uh, Johnson Green was able to avoid a runoff just barely. She got 50% 50% of the vote to Montgomery's 26% and Richard Winfield's 23%. Luke, this one seems to fit in with the theory of the case that we've had for a lot of this episode, which is there was a lot of interest and passion among African-American voters to support African-American candidates. And and this was one you had said that Tabitha Johnson Green was not seen as the favorite or, or really even a serious competitor in this race. Um, and yet she won Without yeah, I mean, to to give you a hint of like how much Athens was not thinking about this campaign, that I saw a lot of open fights on 
A for E's page that when they were considering who to endorse that she literally never came up. It, it, it was just a campaign that was completely absent in the Athens community. And I think part of that could be intentional. It could have been part of their strategy that they focused on the rural communities surrounding Athens. Because Athens can be a bubble, and Athens is very white in its Democratic electorate, and the surrounding counties are not. I mean, you know, if you if you leave Athens, most of the strong Democrats are African-American. And so um, they that campaign, I mean, they must have made a decision to focus on those other counties and try to get as much support outside of Athens as they could. And that appears to have, have worked because, I mean, just based off of, you know, because there's, there's, again, there's what we've talked about already, how there's been a lot of support for African-American women candidates and women candidates in general. And she is the first name on the ballot, and that usually is rumored to give you a little bit of a boost. But, I mean, just proportionally to how much people were talking about Chalice Montgomery and Richard Winfield, I'm, I'm just shocked if their campaign wasn't doing something that got them to avoid a runoff. The the other thing, and I think this would be a good point to kind of wrap up on, is I think that this race is actually probably the very best uh, representation of the potential coattails that Stacey Abrams could have. Um, so I looked at some of the counties that are in this district, and it's, like you said, it's Athens, which is kind of a bubble, but then a lot of the counties going over to the east to the South Carolina line, and then through the kind of southern sweep of that district are a part of uh, the Black Belt region in Georgia, which are, um, you know, is a you know, longtime historically known region is a place where there was a lot of agriculture industry in Georgia and going back to before the Civil War, that means there was a lot of uh, people enslaved in that region. Um, and so to this day, that region is still a region of the state that struggles economically pretty significantly and has a lot of African Americans that live there. You know, I was reminded that Stacey Abrams started her campaign in Albany, which is not in this district, but is, you know, another uh rural corner of the state that has a lot of African-Americans in it. And we even, I don't know, literally I know nothing about Tabitha Johnson Green's campaign, but I do know that to the extent that Abrams was really connecting with African-American voters across the state and encouraging them to support black women, not only her, but, but other candidates, this is where I think her coattails come in and, and really uh, buoy these candidates. Um, and so now that we've seen the result, it makes sense to me. I wouldn't have known it beforehand, and, and I wouldn't have called it at all because Shalice Montgomery raised a lot more money. I think she got endorsed by Emily's List or some of the other big Democratic players. Um, I mean, as did Winfield. Like they, their their fundraising was on parity. Yeah, uh, but I think that this is the the starkest example of how Abrams' strategy is changing the Democratic electorate in a way that you can look at her theory and see it coming out in action um, is, is this result along with the insurance commissioner race. Um, and, and I would say the margin that, in that the lieutenant governor's race. I, I think if, yeah. if Stacey Abrams was not on the ballot, I think Amico probably would have done better. Yeah. Um, but I think that that race is still an uphill climb for Tabitha Johnson green. Uh, Jody Heist had primary challengers, so there was some interest in that race. He's the sitting Republican in that district, but uh, the Republicans combined still got 20,000 more votes than the Democrats. So 
Um, and Jody has blew out his opposition. He yeah. got seventy nine percent vote. Yeah. So so I you know that's going to be an uphill climb for her. But you know she has Abrams uh, making it to the general to potentially buoy her candidacy too. With that though, I think we're going to wrap up our discussion of the state races, uh, the congressional races, the statewide governor's race, lieutenant governor's race. We have a lot of exciting stuff to look forward to. Um, both the runoffs that are going to dominate the Republican side, while you know, with the exception of the congressionals, the the state Democrats get to kind of sit and watch and position themselves. Don't forget state school superintendent. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, it's very important. Yeah, that one will be in a, in a runoff for the Democrats, and, and the incumbent Republican gets to sit and watch those two Democrats, Otha Thornton and Sid Chapman, duke that out. Um, but for now, we are going to leave that there. Uh, if you want to hear about the Athens races, look for the other uh, bonus edition of this week's episode in your feed. We're going to talk about Athens over on that show. Uh, but for now, we're going to let you guys get out of here. Uh, so we will talk to you all next week. Bye, guys. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.